You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Amen. Good morning. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today in the book of 2 Timothy. And as we've seen so far, Paul is weaving together two main themes. First, there's the theme of the message of the gospel, that God is unilaterally saving people, unilaterally calling them to a holy life, that he has now made it possible for you to be friends with him, and that it's that friendship that causes you then to live a good life that it all comes from him, that the friendship you, you now have, the power that you get from that, that has nothing to do with how good you are. It has everything to do with how good he is. And it's that one theme, the message of the gospel, that brings about the second theme, which is that if you hold faithfully to this message, inevitably it's going to bring you into conflict with the people around you. And the reason that that happens is because this world thinks that it is good enough on its own, that it's able to define what is good on its own, so that on our own, we can figure out what a good person is, we can figure out what it means to get, live a good life, and that we can do that without any help from God. And if what God thinks is not exactly what we want to think, then we feel as this world that we can ignore that, throw away what he thinks, and that we'll still carve out a good life for ourselves. That's the way the world thinks. So what happens then when you bring God's thoughts of what is and isn't good into a conversation? Into a conversation about things like identity, sexuality, marriage, money, justice, the list goes on. What happens is that our world is offended. And our world reacts to push his voice away, which means that if you are speaking for the Lord, then it will react to push your voice away, to silence you. And so Paul says, hold to this message, theme one, and you will suffer, theme two. Those are the two themes that Paul keeps weaving back and forth, that God's intention is to call his people to live very publicly holding loyally to him in a way that challenges this world. So how do you do that? What do you need practically to join in what God is doing so that you don't waste your life trying to do something that he's not? That's what Paul starts to outline now in chapter 2. And so he tells Timothy, you have three things you need to do. First, you need to be strong in Christ. Second, you have to entrust this gospel message to faithful people. And third, you need to share in the suffering that this message brings. We'll look at those three today. Be strong in Christ, entrust this message to faithful people, and share in the suffering that comes from doing that. Okay, first, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
We saw last week that chapter 1 ended with a contrast between one person, Onesiphorus, who held tightly to the gospel and a whole Roman province that didn't. And it's in light of that context, that contrast, in light of how hard it is to be unashamed of the gospel, flip it around, make it positive, how hard it is to be proud of everything that God has said. In light of that, Paul says, you then, basically, therefore, you then be strengthened. You think that's kind of an odd way to say that. Be strengthened. That sounds more like the result rather than something that you actually do. See, you'd expect Paul here to say, do this so that you'll be strengthened. Do this so that you'll be strong. Instead, he starts with the result. Be a little bit like if we said, be full instead of eat. Or be rested instead of go lie down. So why does he put it this way? He puts it this way because the emphasis of the Christian life is not on your ability to live it, but on the ability of God to empower you to live it. You can't live the Christian life independently of Christ. And so Paul underlines that necessity by saying you need to be strengthened by what? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And you think, okay, what does that mean? What kind of grace are we talking about here? Are we talking about the kind of grace where Jesus loved you when you didn't deserve it? And you think, okay, that certainly that fits the context. But then wait, does Paul mean maybe that Jesus wiped out the penalty of your sins once for all? And you realize that actually fits in this context as well. Or what about making you alive spiritually, about giving you spiritual life? That's also from him to you as part of his grace. Then there's his grace that now sustains your spirit, that gives you this ongoing life inside, that keeps you spiritually healthy as you're connected to him. Or you can think about grace from another angle. He gives you power over sin now. He gives you the power to resist the devil. Power not just to see the difference between right and wrong, but power to actually want to choose the right. That's grace. That's just for this life. There's also grace that promises one day he's going to take you completely away from the presence of sin. You're not ever going to have to deal with this again. All of those things are part of grace, right? They're all part of what? Of how Jesus now, in this moment, relates to you. And so when Paul says to be strengthened by his grace, he's using grace as a shorthand. It's a way of saying, take advantage. Take advantage of all the unlimited, undeserved resources that Jesus offers to give you. Now that he's connected you, united you to himself, brought you into a relationship with him. In other words, don't try to live the Christian life as if you're on your own. Why? Because you're not. Don't try to do that also because you can't. Instead, rely on the grace of Christ both to what? To hold on to this message and to share in the suffering that comes with it. In other words, Paul is giving you here the secret to how he lives. He's telling you that on his own, he does not have what it takes to be faithful, to be bold, to suffer. He doesn't have that power on his own, but he knows where to find it. He knows where to find supernatural strength. 
And I think this may challenge some of us with our Western mindset. We're used to heroes. We're used to thinking about heroes. We have sports heroes and music heroes. We have gifted business legends, people who rise above the level of mere mortals. And they do amazing things because they work so hard to do that. They're driven to do that. And we have that idea. We come into the scripture and we read about Paul and his life and we conclude, wow, here's one of them. <laughs> Paul must be a spiritual rock star. Someone that we could never come close to being like. And what Paul is saying here is that's not the case. Timothy, you have to live the way that I live. You have to be faithful. You have to take part in suffering. That's part of God's call to all of his people. You have to live this way. And you will never do that on your own. And that's okay, because neither do I. Instead, you need to be strengthened by the same thing that strengthens me. You need to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And you and I ought to find this very encouraging this morning, because Paul just said, this is not beyond any of us to live this way. That if Paul can find the strength to do it, then you and I can too. This is not something that God offers to spiritual superstars or to extra-religious people. This is part of what he offers to all of his people. And so you and I, as we think about holding faithfully to what God's given us in this message of the gospel, and as we think about suffering, you and I need to learn to think like Paul. You remember back to what he said in chapter 1-9, that it's God who calls us. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. That means that if God calls you, if you have that sense, you've already experienced his grace being available to you. You've already tasted what it means to live by his grace. And if he extended his grace to you then, he has not changed his mind about extending it to you now. If he knew that you could not live a godly life before without his grace, why would he now withhold it from you? If you're going to live your life standing out from the rest of human society, holding tightly to a gospel that offends every human heart, if you're going to hold on to a gospel that says that so much of how humanity thinks and lives offends God, a gospel that says we're never going to get right with him apart from Christ. If you're going to live holding on to these things, you're going to need this kind of power to do so. Now, I want to take a real brief aside here. Paul does not tell you in this passage how you actually go about doing this. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time there today. But if you don't know how to be strengthened, how to connect with Christ, to get the grace that you need in order to apply it to your life, then ask someone. That's what the church is here for. You can see me, you can see any of the pastors, any of the elders, we will be happy to help. But you realize it's not just one or two of us who can help. That's what we have CGs and discipleship groups for. That's what we want to see take place in youth group. It's what we want to see take place in our men's and women's ministry. Because all these different ministries are here, at least in part, to help all of us learn how to connect with God to get the grace that we need from him in order to live out the life that he's called us to. Paul knows that he can do this in shorthand with Timothy. He and Timothy have spent enough time that Timothy understands what Paul means here. 
But this is an indication for all of us that this is something we need to grow into. We do that over time. It's one of those things we keep saying here at Renewal, that the Christian life is not a philosophy, not a series of ideas that you stuff into your head, but it's a relationship with a person, a real connection with a real God, with Jesus Christ himself. The principles, the ideas that you find in Scripture do what? They point to this person. But you still need to have a real live experience with him if you're going to tap into his grace that these ideas and principles point to. You have to start there. Paul can't go on before he says anything else. He says, do this first before you do anything else. Turn to Christ. Draw from his grace. Be strengthened by it. Point one. So that point two, you can pass along this gospel message. Verse two, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You're learning there that there is real solid content to the Christian faith. That Christian faith is not like Plato. It's not something that can be pinched and squeezed and molded into anything that you want it to be. Instead, our faith is based on two things that do not change. It's based, one, on real events, real things that God did in time and space as he broke into history, real things that we can study, real things that we can know, real things that go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, historical events that we can't change, things that show that he is absolutely determined to rescue and save his people. Things like saving Noah from the flood, giving Abraham and Sarah a child when there was no physical way that could possibly happen. Things like saving Israel from slavery in Egypt, bringing them safely into the land he promised them. Things like giving them his laws so they would understand who he is and how to live with him. Things like giving them kings to shepherd them, bringing them back from exile in Babylon. All of those things which point to Jesus' death and resurrection that point to his ongoing work to build up and extend his church. Our faith is based on real events that really took place, times when God broke into history and did things. It's based on real events, one, and second, it's based on how God understands those real events. It's based on what he thinks about them, on what he has to say about them. That means that our faith is based on historical events as understood by Scripture. Those two things that we don't have the freedom to change. We're not allowed to add to them. We're not allowed to subtract from them. We don't get to reinterpret them just because they're not exactly the kind of thing that our friends and neighbors really want to hear. We can't change them because they're the kind of thing that will get you into trouble with the people around you. If you alter the facts that happened or if you pretend they didn't happen or if you change your understanding of them, what is it you're doing? You create a different faith, a different understanding not only of what God was doing in the world but of why he was doing it. And so Paul tells Timothy that he has to receive the message of the gospel that he's heard from Paul. This message that Timothy has heard in the presence of many witnesses Sounds like Paul was preaching. Sounds like he was teaching. No doubt, Timothy's also heard this th these things from Paul individually. 
Timothy has to receive that message like all of Scripture. He's to take what he's heard, not modify it, not trim it, not innovate, not be original, but he's to take what he's heard and then entrust it, pass it along as he heard it to other people. Other people whose fundamental trait is their faithfulness, their willingness to receive all that's been entrusted to them and then accurately transmit it to other people as well. You start to see here what the Christian community is, that we are actually a learning community. We are a people who receive the content of the faith that God has given his people down through the ages, and then we transmit it faithfully. We give it away accurately to others. With the expectation, what? That we will do so in such a way that they then transmit it to others as well. This is how the Christian life works. You come to understand the gospel, you come to understand the rest of our faith, where? In community, with God's people. But that only happens if you enter into the community with a certain trait, a certain posture, with something that will characterize you for your entire time in the community. It means that you have to enter into the community listening, hearing, and that hearing posture then stays with you as part of your new life in this community. Paul heard, learned from Christ. He heard from Christ. Timothy heard from Paul. Others heard from Timothy. A later generation of believers heard from them. Hearing and learning, that's, that's what? It's essential to us as believers. It's one of the primary ways that God uses to grow us spiritually. See, spiritual growth and development, it's not magical. It's not mystical. It doesn't just happen to you. A lot of our spiritual growth and development comes from hearing, from listening, learning to someone else in the faith, someone who themselves has heard, listened, learned from others. In fact, hearing is so important, so central to the Christian life that Jesus says, we can't grow if we won't hear correctly. In Luke 8, 18, he was teaching one time and he warned the people who were listening to him. He said, be careful how you hear. Because if you hear well, he said, then you'll get to hear more. If you have some already, you'll get more. But if you hear poorly, then even what you've heard will be taken away. Now, when you go through Scripture, there's an awful lot in Scripture about being careful of what you say, a lot that focuses on your tongue and on your words. But there's this other really important emphasis through Scripture on how you hear, on how you listen, which is actually really empowering because you're not responsible for the quality of someone else's teaching. You're not responsible for how good or bad a teacher they are. You have no control over that. You are responsible for how you listen. You're responsible for what you do with what you're, you hear. You're responsible for how you learn. And that's empowering because it means that you have some control over your growth as a believer. 
Growth doesn't just happen. It doesn't only happen if you manage to stumble into a really good teaching community, one that knows you, gets you, is able to say things in exactly the right way for you. But it means that you have some involvement for how you turn out as a child of God, regardless of how skilled the teachers are that God's given you. That's empowering. And so when someone is teaching, either publicly like now, this morning, or more privately in discipleship counseling, you have a responsibility. You need to work during that time. You need to stay focused. Don't check out. Take notes. A number of you are taking notes. Take notes to help you stay focused. Think carefully about what you hear. It's part of what it means to hear well. And you're going to have to be intentional about this throughout your time in the church. Because as you already know, there are a lot of bad ways to listen when our faith is being taught. Like right now, one bad way you could listen is you could listen to speak, not listen to hear. Do you know what I mean by that? That you could be listening right now, but not listening to learn, not listening to apply this passage to apply 2 Timothy to yourself, but you could listen right now to argue with it, to formulate arguments in your head, to say why Scripture, or why me as I'm teaching Scripture, is wrong, to say, yes, I know that's what the Bible says, but... See, when you say things like that, or when you think things like that, when you add the but... That's not listening to hear. That's listening to speak. There's places to evaluate and to think carefully. It's different than just wanting to speak. Or you can listen to complain. Listen to correct. Listen to find fault. I can't tell you how many times I have had to repent of this. I remember a long time ago, shortly after seminary, Sally and I would drive home from church. Our uh, daughter in the back, and I would slice and dice the sermon that the pastor gave. I would point out all of the flaws, all of the parts that could have been said better, that in my opinion should have been said better. I was not sitting under Scripture, not sitting under the preaching of the Word that God had graciously given me that morning, but I was sitting in judgment over it. And I remember finally being convicted by the Holy Spirit that I was not discipling my family to hear I was discipling us to critique. I was discipling my family to be critical. And therefore, I was discipling us not to grow. And I had to repent, had to focus us when we talked afterward on what we had heard instead of what we hadn't, on what we had learned, on what God had for us instead of focusing on what wasn't there. It's another bad way to hear, listening to correct. Or you can listen just to put your time in. You read your Bible on your own. You listen to preaching. Your folks make you come on Sunday morning. And you let your mind drift. You let yourself be distracted by other things that you find more interesting. What's that? You're not listening to learn. You're listening to be religious. To put your time in. Listen in any of those ways and a whole bunch of others, and you will not take your place in the church. You won't grow personally. 
And you won't be able to faithfully pass along the message that you've been entrusted with because you never received it fully in the first place. Instead, at best, what are you going to do? You're going to pass along a caricature of the Christian faith. You're going to pass along something that will miss the point of what God has to say at best. Or at worst, you're going to join the long list of heresies that have cropped up in the church over the past 2,000 years. How you hear is not a little thing. That's why Paul says this to Timothy. So be very careful then how you hear this today. Because what is God doing on the earth? He's not establishing an institution. He's transmitting a message. He's not creating an organization. He's transforming individual lives through a message when that message faithfully points back to him. This is how he's at work, building his church, and this is what his church looks like as it's being built. What's that mean? It means that you and I cannot afford to take lightly hearing and teaching. We have to put this right at the heart of our lives because this is how our God has chosen to grow his people. So maybe just invite you to reflect a moment. Ask yourself, is this something that you've given yourself to? to hearing and to teaching? Or along the way, has this become in your mind something that's optional? Something you've gotten really used to or maybe you're bored with? Maybe something that you find hard to do and so you've started looking around for something that's a little easier, a little more exciting. When you do that, what are you doing? You're taking yourself out of the center of what God is doing in his church in this world. You're taking yourself out of what theologians will call the ordinary means of grace. Out of one of the things that God himself has ordained to transform the lives of his people. You're taking yourself out of hearing scripture, out of sitting under preaching, teaching, because you're looking for God to use some other means to accomplish his work in you. Something that is more appealing to you. There's a story told about a conversation in heaven. It took place shortly after Jesus had ascended. They're sat down at God's right hand. Everyone's excited that he's back. They're congratulating him on his triumph over evil. The angels are all crowding around. And someone asks, okay, Jesus, now what? What's the next step in your glorious plan of restoring humanity in the universe back to what you want it to be? And the risen Lord smiled and he said, well, it's easy. I'm entrusting the building of my church to people. People who will listen carefully to people who faithfully teach all that I've said to them in Scripture. And then those listeners will then pass along what they've heard to others, who will then faithfully pass it along to others over and over and over down through the ages. And there was this awkward silence. Heavenly hosts are digesting this information. One of them, after a while, tentatively spoke up, said with fear and trembling, okay, 
Um, <clears throat> what's plan B? Friends, there is no plan B. Lord's not hiding anything up his sleeve from his people, not holding back some magical key to the Christian life that you just haven't found yet. Instead, his plan is that we are a learning, discipling community, a community that works hard to hear everything that God has said and who then faithfully teach others also. If you're not interested in this, you're not interested in what God's doing. This is really important. Let me bring this home to us a little bit more because I've heard it said, and I've heard us say it here, things along the lines of Scripture is nice, preaching is nice, but that's not really what changes people because no one remembers a fraction of the sermons that they've heard, but everyone remembers when they've been loved. So what changes people is people. It's people who love on you who will change you. Let's think about that. What is that? It's a focus on one aspect of discipleship, the fact that discipleship comes through a human being. That's legitimate, but it's a focus on that aspect alone that downplays the content of what that person brings into the discipleship relationship. It's a focus that downplays the importance of what you read in 2 Timothy 2.2. What is that then when you say that? Effectively, that's plan B. It's a way of modifying, of changing what Christ has said. It's an alternative to how he said he will build his church. And I understand that. It's really easy to, to, to think that way. But you, you and I live in an anti-intellectual culture. We live in a culture where what you think is thought to be much less important than how you live. That what people need is not help thinking clearly. What they need is support. They need to be affirmed in what they're thinking, validated. And that any attempt to do otherwise results in harm. That's the world you and I live in. That's what we hear. That's the air we breathe. That's the attitude that sneaks into the church. It's an attitude that you hear when someone says something like, doctrine doesn't really matter. What matters is how you live. What matters is how you love. What are they saying? They're saying, we found plan B, <laughs> that we don't have to do the hard work of learning of disciplining ourselves to listen, to think about what we heard, to be challenged, allow ourselves to be challenged by what, about what we believe, so that our beliefs then end up more in line with the way God thinks, so that we then live that out and live those beliefs, then pass them along. We don't have to do all of that. Doctrine's not as important as some theologians make it out to be. You know, everybody believes different kind of things. There's so many ways of thinking about these doctrines of the faith. We're just going to get into endless arguments. So doctrine doesn't matter. Only how you live matters. Be careful if you find that line of thinking enticing. Because as Timothy Keller has pointed out, when you say doctrine doesn't matter, 
That is a doctrine. Saying doctrine doesn't matter is a doctrine. It's a way of thinking about your faith. It's a theological statement. It doesn't come from Scripture, but it's a theological statement about the importance of what you believe. It is a doctrine, but because it says doctrine doesn't matter, only how you live matters, it's a doctrine that says salvation is by what? By works. Because what matters is how you live. What matters is what you do, not what Christ has done for you. Do you see how you have to be careful how you hear? How you have to be careful how you listen? Because if you're not careful, if you don't know the difference between what it means to be saved by grace or saved by works, you will confuse the two. And you will end up creating, living out a faith that's no longer Christianity but something that's a completely different religion. Since I'm already in trouble, let me get a little more personal. Why should you never brag about how little you get out of reading the Bible? Or how little you understand from a sermon? Or how little sermons seem to have impacted you when you were growing up? You ever done that? You ever roll your eyes in youth group maybe or CG or with your friends and say, I didn't get a thing out of that. That may have been true, but did you say it with remorse? Did you say it with a sense of missing out? Did you say it with a, a sense of hunger, of really wishing that you had gotten something? Most of the time when we say stuff like that, we're not longing for God to send someone, anyone, to help us make sense out of it. We say stuff like that to push it away. To say, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I didn't get a thing from that. Did you ever do that? What is that? You're bragging about how little you got. You're, you're proud of how little you got. You're not embarrassed. Don't do that. Because you're saying that plan A, that 2 Timothy 2.2 didn't work. Worse, what you're really saying is that you did everything you were supposed to do. You were reading, you were in CG, you were in the worship service, you did everything you were supposed to, which means then that God didn't. He dropped the ball. He said he would work in your life through Scripture, through the message being passed on, and he didn't. It is so easy to ignore passages like this and ask instead, okay, but what's plan B? Don't do that. Doctrine matters, teaching matters, because it's how the church faithfully hears and passes along what we've heard so that God's people grow up like he intends. Now, I should say something here about the special people that God has sent into every one of our lives, and he has done that. Because when you hear this emphasis of 2 Timothy 2.2, given the world that we live in, it's easy to object, to find an objection in your head that says, but what about the person who did love me, who made such a big impact in my life? That's legitimate. That should happen, right? That they make a big impact in your life. If if they came faithfully teaching what God has given his church. That experience fits into this passage as long as they came with his message 
and not with their own. Which makes sense, right? Because the only way they could really love you, love you like God himself would have loved you, is if they've heard what real love is. If they've heard the message of love and then love you from within how God defines love and not from some other definition of what love is. See, God is love. He's the definition of love. Anything outside of his thoughts and commands is what? It's not love. And that's why discipleship has to be tied to being faithful to his message without changing it. Because if you try to define love without hearing what God has to say about love, you're turning love into an idol. You're giving it an existence apart from God, as though it has some way of existing apart from God. Idols do what? They, they always leave you empty at best, or they damage you at worst. And that's why, point two, we have to be committed to hearing the message that God's given us and then passing it along without changing it. Which, if you do that, will lead you to point three, and I'll be very brief here. It will lead you to having, verse three, to share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Take part in the mission of the church. Be involved in this receiving and teaching discipleship work that transforms people and people will be unhappy with you. You're going to challenge strongly held beliefs. You're going to contradict things that people have valued and built their lives on. Things that just make sense to them, they're not going to like it. And so you're going to get pushback, both from inside the church and from outside. As people pressure you, they want you to back down, they want you to change the message, modify what you communicate. Paul knows that's what's coming for Timothy, that this is just part of the normal Christian life. It's not just Timothy-specific, but as he says in chapter 312, that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It comes to all of us. And so he underlines one more time, this is coming, so how do you do this? Timothy, you have to accept this and embrace it as part of what it means to faithfully follow the Lord and hold to his message. And then Paul gives three practical examples of what Timothy's going to have to do to overcome three temptations when you might suffer for being faithful. And so first, he says, verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So you think here, okay, what's the temptation? It's to find some comfort, some place of ease, some relief where you don't have to suffer, to wander off from your duty. Because something else promises a little bit of distraction. It lets you not have to put yourself daily in the line of possible pain or death. That's what a soldier's life was. And Paul says, don't do that. Focus instead on the one who enlisted you. Don't focus on the people who want you to back off. Don't focus on the things that might make life easier. Focus instead on what your commander wants. And then you're not going to get all tangled up in looking for a cushier life. That's one temptation you'll face in how to overcome it. Here's the second, at verse 5. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. 
Now this one's really obvious if you've ever been in a sport. If you cheat, if you change the rules, then there's no way you can win. I used to run track in high school when I had knees that worked. And, and so this image comes up in my mind, very vivid picture of a bunch of guys setting off to run a 400 meter dash. That's one lap around the track. But one of them decides halfway around that he's going to take a shortcut. And so instead of staying on the track to finish the race, he runs across the field, cuts across the field instead, and ends up at the finish line before everyone else who went around. Does that mean he wins? No, it means he's disqualified. It means that all of the effort that he put in is now wasted. That there is absolutely nothing to show for the work that he did. And Paul says, do that. Cheat. Trim the truth when you're about to suffer. Modify the message so that it fits in better with the people around you. Do that, and you will have absolutely nothing to show for it because it's not like having part of the message counts. The message is a complete unit. Cutting some pieces out doesn't make the message better. What it does is it changes the whole message like we talked about two weeks ago. In this life, you're going to be tempted to cut corners. You're going to feel pressured to not say things that you know people are going to struggle with. And Paul is urging you here, remember the rules. Remember that God's word in its entirety is the only sure guide that we have for faith and life. Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way in question two, that the Word of God is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. So if you start treating the Word of God like a Word document, cutting and pasting, based on the pressure that you're feeling, you will lose the ability to glorify God and you will not enjoy Him because you won't enter into what he's doing on this earth. That's the second temptation. Third temptation is just to be lazy. Verse 6, it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. In that age, there were landowners who didn't work the land. They rented it out, but they still expected to receive a share of the crops without doing any of the work. And Paul says that is not the way that the kingdom of God works. It's an amazing thing when you get invited to help someone else grow, when you get to help them learn and apply the gospel to their lives that you have learned yourself. It's an incredible privilege that takes real effort, real work. Paul's telling Timothy, he's telling us, it is really tempting when the pressure gets turned up. It's tempting to back off and not work as hard. But if you do that, you're no longer involved in what God is doing. Don't get entangled. Don't cheat. Don't sit back. Instead, share in suffering. Keep focused on your commanding officer. Work within what he says with all the energy that he strengthens you with. And the only way that you're going to desire to do that, want to do that, is by relying on him to give you that desire. Verse 7, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. That's not an intellectual understanding. That's something that has to come supernaturally from the Lord. It's not something you just work out in your own head. 
It's, this is the kind of understanding that Peter had in Matthew 16 when he says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. You and I need that same revealing, that same spiritual understanding, spiritual awakening from Jesus. If we're going to look at this passage and say, this is good. This is something that I want. I want to be faithful to what God has said. I want to pass this along to others, even if it brings suffering. This is good, and it's worth my life. Without that awakening, you won't feel that way. Without that awakening, this is just dull or, or frightening. Something to ignore, something to run away from, not something to embrace, give your life to. It's the kind of understanding that you need, the kind of spiritual awakening, but how do you get it? Paul says the key there is think on these things, meditate on them, turn them over in your mind, see how they first speak of Christ before they ever have anything to say to you. See that you need to learn to trust this Jesus only by seeing that they first apply to him before they ever apply to you. And so you think over, meditate, how Jesus is the soldier who never got entangled in civilian affairs. He's the one who sacrificed being in heaven with his father, his home, and came here instead to a place where he had no home, no place to lay his head. To a place where he did not do normal things like get married. Did not seek any comfort because he came to please his father, not himself. Because you were the bride that he wanted to fight for. To suffer for and die for in order to save you. You think over how he is the athlete who competed according to the rules. God spoke to our first ancestor, Adam, and said to him, Obey me. Compete according to the rules. Obey me, and you will live. And the first Adam cheated, did not obey. So then God said to the second Adam, to his only son, our Lord, Obey me. Compete according to the rules. Obey me, and you will die. And Jesus Christ did not cheat, but he obeyed and died so that you and I would live. And because of that, he triumphed. You think over how he is the hard-working farmer who labored, still does, to bring in a harvest of souls to give eternal life, life that he already has that he does not need for himself. He does not work for himself. He labors for you. He did, needed none of the results of what he did for himself. But he served faithfully as a soldier, competed honestly as an athlete, worked hard as a farmer for you because he loved you. Think on these things until the Lord wakens them up in your heart and you realize, man, if you're willing to do that for me, there isn't anything you'll lead me into that ultimately will not be for the best. 
This is the Jesus that we're about to celebrate in communion. This is the Jesus that we expect to meet with us. So let me invite you, take a few minutes now and get your heart ready to do so. Maybe there are sins that you need to confess, things that he's convicting you of this morning. Or maybe just reflect on how amazing he is so that you want as much of him as you can possibly get. Let's take a few moments and we'll eat and drink together.